I miss your faces, Wallace. If you are tuning in this morning, uh, relatively new to the congregation, Jamie welcomed you. I'd also like to do the same. We're so grateful that you've joined us. We are going to look this morning at Psalm 13. Some of you may be wondering, I thought we were studying 1 Peter. We were, but I'm going to take a short break because I think it might be important to help you address some of the emotions that you may be wrestling with right now in the midst of this pandemic that we're suffering. You may be feeling fear, worry, frustration, sorrow, and at the same time wondering, what do I do with these emotions? Does God care? How do I process what I'm feeling with the Lord? Thankfully, we receive immense help in God's Word with that question, and particularly in the book of Psalms. Give you a little background on the Psalms. Think of Psalms as an iPod for Joe and Julie Israel. It contains 150 songs, some long, some short, most moderate length, some designed for corporate singing, some designed for individual singing. And like your iPod and mine probably, there are a variety of types of songs. We call that genre. So scholars show us that there are psalms that can be considered royal psalms. Jamie's preached on some of the royal psalms. Wisdom psalms. Yesterday in my devotions, I read Psalm 78, an historical psalm. Psalms written for confession. Psalms of confidence. Psalms of thanksgiving. The psalms end with the fireworks of adoration to God. Psalms of praise. And we find that there are psalms called psalms of lament. These poems, though we're distanced from most of them by roughly 3,000 years, are actually immediately accessible to us because we see real people with real struggles, with real tested faith, and expressing brutal honesty with God, forthright pleading. Look at verse 2 of Psalm 13. That's our text this morning. David writes, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Pleading, forthright, brutal honesty. And in this we see that the Bible never minimizes human pain or trivializes human suffering. So the Psalms end up being an anatomy of the soul. They allow us to express our needs, our emotions, they help us articulate, where is God in my thinking? Where is the truth in how I'm emotionally processing things like coronavirus? Well, I picked one psalm this morning, Psalm 13. It's relatively short. It's a psalm of lament. I'll read it for us. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? 
Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemies say, I've prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. What are you doing when you either think or say, oh, that there was no coronavirus. Oh, that life would return to normal. Oh, that my kids would obey me. Oh, that my friends would reach out to me. Oh, that these spring allergies would leave my body. When you are saying or thinking things like that, the technical term is you are lamenting. To lament is to express sorrow, grief, anger, frustration, disorientation associated with any overwhelming human experience. So naturally, when we find our hearts discontent with the status quo and we experience a desire for things to be different, we lament, we grieve, we sorrow. We actually do with virtually the same things as the authors of the Bible, the psalmists. They lament evil, their enemies, calamity, loss, sickness, death, injustice, their own failings, a sense of the distance of God, a lack of the nearness of God. I found in my life, the longer I walk with Christ as a Christian, the more my lament focuses on my failure to give God what he deserves. I lament not being grateful as I should, not being as full of praise to him as I should. I lament not revering the Lord as I should. I lament not obeying the Lord with the joyful obedience that he deserves. Obviously, we experience varying degrees of lament. Sometimes you sorrow in the morning, and by lunchtime, it's dissipated. In David's case, verse 2, it's sorrow in my heart all the day. He wakes up, he has breakfast, he's lamenting. At lunch, he's lamenting. He has dinner, he's going to bed at night. He's lamenting. Why? In this case, someone's trying to kill him. Verse 2, how long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Flesh and blood enemies, beloved. Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I prevailed over him. Lest my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. Now the precise situation is not identified in the psalm, but we know that David feared for his life, initially in his life, from the very king of Israel, Saul. And from men within his own country, within his own family, and of course foreigners trying to attack his beloved Israel. Obviously, the more important something is to you, the deeper your lament. The more precious, uh, with unmet longing, the louder and longer that you, va- uh, you wail. For example, it's one thing to lose your iPod. It's another thing to lose thousands in your retirement account because of the economy. And quite another to lose your life or the life of a loved one. We all lament 
we should lament. Here's the challenge. Do we lament well? That's why I wanted to do this sermon today. We're lamenting what's going on in our world, in our nation, our families, our country. Do we lament well? Do we mourn and grieve and lay our complaint before God so that it's not merely venting, although as a pastor I think there's a place for venting. I've had some of you come in my office and then you'd stop and say, I'm just venting, and I'm like, that's okay, you can vent in my presence. But do we lament in a way that we end up in a better place emotionally? Our emotions are doing what God's designed them to do. I'm going to assume for the sake of the sermon that we don't naturally or instinctively lament well. Some of you get stuck in anger. Some of you get stuck in self-pity. Woe is me. Why why is this happening to me? Some of us get stuck in self-righteous blame. We just take pleasure blaming somebody else. All of those things ultimately uh, prove to be forms of self-medicating that temporarily dull pain but never produce health. Lamenting well is a gift God gives us so that we can move from merely complaining and into receiving perspective and comfort and deeper rest in God's love for us. So I want to look at five, that's a long introduction, I want to look at five elements of healthy lament, I believe, uh, come from the psalm. Number one, healthy lament affirms our sense of abnormality. See, why is David lamenting in the first place? Someone's trying to kill him. This is not the way it's supposed to be. No one should fear for their life. What do you think, how do you feel when you see the color pictures of the coronavirus on your computer screen? I'm repulsed by it. I loathe what I'm looking at. That thing no more belongs in God's beautiful, perfect creation than toxic waste in your morning cereal. I hate it when I see that. You shouldn't be happy that people are dying and getting sick and losing their resources. This is not the way it's supposed to be. In the world God gave our first parents, there was nothing to lament. So lament tells you you were created for more than survival of the fittest. So this is an interesting time to think about your worldview. Perhaps you're joining us this morning. You don't believe in God. Your worldview is materialistic. You believe that basically all there is is molecules in motion. And if that's the case, why then lament suffering? Why does it matter if I hurt you or you hurt me? But see, it does matter. We do care and we should care. In fact, why we lament is because we instinctively long for things to be right. We long for Eden, for a world without troubles. That's what God created us for. So therefore, lament can function to help us lift the lid on our souls, lift the lid on our inmost being, and realize, oh, I was created for beauty. I was created for health. I was created for safety. I was created for pleasure. I was created for relational peace, for justice, for truth. (laughs) So ultimately, Lament anything in your life as an echo of our ultimate desire to be at peace with God and to be in the presence of God. Let lament bring you back to the thing for which God made you, ultimately enjoying Him 
in a place made by Him, being made for Him, relishing the glory of His person. That's ultimately the thing for which we were made and we ought to lament. Notice David's lament. He laments not having communion with God, that the Lord is near. Verse 1, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? This tells us that at some point in David's life, he experienced much closer nearness to God, fellowship with God, communion with God, a sense of being in the Lord's presence. He's lacking that now. Sort of a sidebar, I also want you to note that one thing the psalmists do not do is wonder why there's evil and suffering in the world. They address it, they lament it, but you don't find the psalmists trying to give an apologetic for why evil is in the world. Their worldview assumes that sin brought death and suffering into the world. They know that. And somehow there's peace in the mind of of, of the biblical writers that there's this tension that ultimately we can't resolve, the tension between the fact that, yes, sin brought death and suffering into the world, not God, and human beings are absolutely responsible for things they do, and yet mysteriously, God is absolutely sovereign over the control of their decisions. There's a tension. The point is, the psalmist is is not quick to answer the question, why is there evil in the world? But it does concern David, how long until God answers him? How long will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? In other words, deliver me from the power of my enemies. Use your resources, God. Bring me out of this tight place. One translation has in verse 2 that David has agony in his mind. So do you see that a healthy lament places God front and center? David calls on God because he knows God is in control. God has the power to deliver him. And actually, you may know that there are a number of different words in the Hebrew language for God. David is calling, in this case, upon Yahweh. That's the God gives his people Israel to express his covenant, steadfast, loving relationship with them. David knows he's in covenant with God. That gives him the right to pray, the right to plead, the right to cry out, a desire for the presence of God. Oh, Yahweh, help me, draw near, deliver me, assure me. So That's the first point. Healthy lament affirms our sense of abnormality. I can't demand perfection, therefore, in a Genesis 3 world. Just to give a silly illustration, you go on vacation, the airline loses your golf clubs, you're getting upset. Remember that millions of people in this world can't even afford to buy a golf tee. Second element of healthy lament. Healthy lament may expose the precise nature of your problem. In David's case, he's being hotly pursued. But not all pursuit is unjust. Suppose you wander into restricted government property and someone starts pursuing you. There's a good reason why they're pursuing you. There usually isn't a good reason why King David is being pursued. It's almost usually unjust and unrighteous. So times of lament force you to pray, to be quiet before God. And you might discover in those prayers the real nature of your problem. For example, you may be lamenting, and discover that the cause of your suffering is you when you didn't think so. For example, 
you're lamenting stress in a relationship. And through prayer and reading God's word, God shows you that actually you're being frustrated because you're being driven by the need to be right, by the need to be in control, by the need to be seen as competent. You're being frustrated by your need for approval and you're not receiving it. God shows you in prayer that your suffering is actually due to you in that case. Or contrarily, in prayer and bringing your lament for the Lord, you realize, oh, I'm not the problem when I thought I was the problem. For example, you're feeling oppressed and you realize, no, this is from the devil. Or someone is rejecting you and you realize the problem isn't in me, it's because I identify with Jesus Christ who said if they hated me, they will hate you. Maybe you're suffering in a relationship and you've discovered in that relationship that you cannot meet your spouse's demand for control and you refuse to cede that to them. You refuse to let them be controlling. You refuse to feed that idol and you're suffering as a result. That's not your fault. You're actually doing the right and the righteous thing by not feeding that person's idol. So we discover in prayer, sometimes we're maybe the problem when we didn't think so, or we're not the problem when we thought so. Third element of a healthy lament. Healthy lament may expose God's fatherly discipline and thus be a cause for rejoicing. Uh, Not all of David's lament are born of his innocence. You may know the tragic story of David's great sin as king of Israel with Bathsheba. And to cover up the pregnancy, he had her husband killed in the front lines, Uriah. David wrote, uh, wrote two poems reflecting on this incident. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. Turns out Psalm 51 is the poem written in closest proximity to this sin. Psalm 32 written with some distance from all of this sin. And in Psalm 32, David laments the loss of physical vitality. Ultimately, because he was deceiving himself for a period and not owning how wretched this sin was before God. Here's what he writes in Psalm 32, verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, not owning his sin, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. As he reflects back on what was going on and the loss of his physical vitality, he realizes, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David didn't identify it immediately as the Lord's discipline, though in time he came to see it that way. That might mean that I'm experiencing sickness at the Lord's hand as chastisement for my own selfishness. It might mean God is frustrating your plans because you're acting arrogantly. It might mean that you're lamenting just feeling blah because you're excessively focused on sensuality or social acceptance or academic respectability. But in each case, you've lost sight of God's true beauty and given your heart over to inferior beauty. God may allow you to be frustrated in those things as an act of discipline. We have a, in the New Testament a mini-sermon on the Lord's fatherly discipline. It's Hebrews 12, verses 7 to 11. I'll read it for us. It's, it's sort of a sermon in and of itself. The writer writes, 
It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? I mean, if, you're, if you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. He disciplines us for our good that we may, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Here's what this means. You're feeling sorrow. Is God in these circumstances exposing to you and challenging circumstances things that you otherwise would not see? How selfish, foolish, self-reliant, unnecessarily defensive you are. How do you know whether or not you put excessive trust in your money? Well, you find that out when your money's being lost. Whatever God is doing in your life, beloved, it is meant to drive you to him, to show you that his love is better than life, and to show you how utterly dependent you are on him. Here's what happens to me sometimes. I find myself lamenting a, a situation, and I need to deconstruct what happened in that situation. For example, I'll realize after the fact, I said something really stupid. I realized after the fact, I was thinking something of another person that was evil and proved to be completely wrong. I realized after the fact, I just spent money really unnecessarily and foolishly. I realized after the fact, I squandered good time by what I just did. Here's my point. What happened that I got to those places? One answer is I failed to prepare my heart for those situations. I wasn't seeking to be a man under the control of the Holy Spirit. One of the most neglected commands in the New Testament, Ephesians 5.18, don't be drunk with wine, that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. This is a present tense, ongoing command. We're called as men and women pursuing the heart of God to seek to be filled with the Spirit. And I realize I look back on these situations and I realize I wasn't asking to be filled with the Spirit, so my flesh got the better of me. God shows us how weak we are. God shows us how dependent we are, how much we need Him, how self-reliant we are that we so infrequently beg God to bring us under the control of His Spirit. Healthy lament, number four. Healthy lament embraces sadness. Notice David faces his problem head on. He's extremely transparent in his sorrow. Lesson learned. We should not stuff our feelings. Think of your tears as liquid sadness. Denying your sorrow only breeds emotional and physical problems. Being stoic, grin and bear it, is decidedly not biblical. 
I've actually learned a lot from my daughter, Laura, in the last year about lamenting well. Laura has studied lament fairly extensively in seminary. She's spoken on it. And as she has processed her own pain in her life and come along students in her role as an RUF campus uh, uh, staff at Emory University in Atlanta with Reformed University Fellowship, helping students process pain coming from broken homes and experiencing pain and broken relationships, she's brought a lot for me to think about that I actually had never thought about. So I want to just steal a little bit from some of her writing and thinking and share it with you because it's challenged and helped me. Laura says, enter into sadness with the Lord near you and see how he meets and heals your heart and brings you joy in the midst of sadness and through sadness. She says this invitation is predicated on the fact that we trust God doesn't waste our suffering. And though we would rather have our circumstances changed, the Lord calls us to walk through our suffering in faith, to watch faith put to work and strengthened. And we do this by engaging sadness through lament so that we can live in hope and rest in God's love and resist the urge to hide from it and to avoid sadness. Laura has experienced, she helps students experience, and me understand that once you've poured out your frustrations and fears to the Lord, lament ultimately leads you to submission and trust and therefore rest in the Lord's goodness. You, re- you voice your grief to the Lord and you begin to thirst for God's truth to quench you and this truth will become beautiful and trustworthy to your soul. Far better than the alternative, being agitated by bitterness and denial. A lot more we could say about that. But I take that to heart. I'm not a person, I don't think, who's wired to embrace sadness. I'm learning from my daughter on that. Last point, healthy lament drives you to the love of Jesus. David's song here anticipates a fuller, clearer, greater expression of the love of God in Jesus Christ. Verse 5, but I've trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. Without a doubt, the Old Testament saints knew the gospel. They knew that we are accepted by God on the basis of faith in the sacrifice God would make in our stead for our sins. But they did not see the gospel and the radiant colors that we do in the New Testament. They didn't have the revelation of the supreme beauty of that sacrifice in Jesus Christ. When David says, I trust in your steadfast love, we can say the steadfast love of God is Jesus Christ. When David rejoices in the Lord's salvation, we know that our hearts rejoice in the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And that means you can only make sense of your lament when you meet Jesus in his lament. Jesus sang the songs of lament. Jamie read earlier in the service from Isaiah 53, Jesus is identified as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. One reason why we know repeatedly in the Bible God tells us he has a heart for those who are suffering, who are afflicted, is because God the Father has a son who was seriously afflicted, who led a life of suffering, who experienced grief, sorrow, 
beyond anything that we can imagine, his own son. And I think it's worth asking the question, we're ultimately going to get to the cross, but it's ultimately worth asking the question, over what kinds of things did the man of sorrows grieve? I want to show you some because they're extremely important to show us the heart of God and to save us in our own spiritual health. Jesus lamented, first, legalism. The legalism of the religious experts of his time. Legalism is a two-sided coin. On the one hand, Jesus lamented, grieved, was angered over the teachers of his day teaching people they could be accepted by God by their own efforts. That would be legalistic salvation. Making yourself approved to God by your effort. The other side of legalism is is binding the consciences of sincere, tender-hearted religious people with laws that are man-made and not God's. You see this come out in Matthew, on the one hand, Matthew 23, 13. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you neither enter in yourselves nor allow those who would enter in. By teaching religion of works, they're shutting the kingdom of God in people's faces. The kingdom of God is entered by grace, through faith, through the work of Jesus, not our own works. Jesus loathed this. He grieved this. He mourned it. And then he said in Matthew um, 23, verse 4, you tie heavy burdens, hard to bear. You lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not even willing to move them with their finger. These are these man-made laws and rules that just burden people down. Legalistic restrictions on people, not God's laws, which ultimately liberate them. Jesus grieved those, sorrowed over those. Secondly, he was grieved by human hard-hearted, heart, hard-heartedness, hard-heartedness, a heart that's hard. There was a situation where Jesus was in a synagogue. It was a Sabbath. He was going to heal a man with a withered hand. The religious leaders were there plotting how they might destroy him. And the fact that Jesus wanted to heal on the Sabbath was cause for them doing this. Mark 3, verse 5, he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch forth your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored, and they went off and plotted how to destroy Jesus. Such a condition of disdain for the healing, loving, merciful heart of God that Jesus would heal on the Sabbath, and that become a cause for wanting to put Jesus to death. Legalism, hard-heartedness, Jesus also sorrowed over human helplessness. Matthew 9, 36. When Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus sorrowed over the lostness of human beings, they look like sheep all scattered with no one to help them, no one to love them, no one to shepherd them, no one to care for them. This broke the heart of Jesus. And he laid the fault largely at the feet of the religious people who refused to tend these sheep with the very gospel of the word of God. Jesus lamented human unbelief. Luke 19, 41, Jesus drew near the city, Jesus drew near and saw the city, Jerusalem, and he wept over it. 
Imagine you were with Jesus. And he looks at Jerusalem. And he bursts into tears. Profound sorrow and grief filling his heart. And he said, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. He grieved the unbelief of people failing to seize on the shalom of God found in himself, in God's promises, in God's gospel. Jamie mentioned earlier Jesus weeping at the grave of Lazarus' friend. We know that Jesus sorrowed over death. He wailed, he snorted with anger and wept at the grave of Lazarus. Death did not belong in the world his father created. Death is in the world because of sin. This grieves Jesus. And finally, beloved, on the cross, Jesus transforms David's imprecation against his enemies. David says, don't let them prevail over me. That's understandable. Someone's trying to kill you. You're praying, Lord, don't let them prevail over me. That's understandable. Jesus transforms that cry into the incomprehensible words, basically, let my enemies triumph over me. Jesus refuses to attack his enemies and instead takes in his body the judgment due his enemies. So we see new meaning in David's plea. How long will you hide your face from me? In the words of Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has God, his Father, forsaken him? Because in that moment, Jesus, not for his own sin, he was perfect, but bearing the sins of his people on the cross was a hideous blob of wretched sin and filth, and his father could not look upon him. Jesus, taking our sins from us in his body, nailing them to the tree. So, beloved, there are ultimately only two choices. You either trust Jesus to lament for you over your sins and die for your sins. You either trust Jesus or you will die with them and lament forever in agony in your sins. If you trust Jesus, whatever your sorrows, you can be sure it's not this. It's not that he doesn't love us. So Jesus' lament, coupled with the resurrection triumph over, his resurrection triumph over the grave, guarantees a future where there'll be nothing to lament. No sorrow, no tears, no sadness, no sickness, no death. All lament has been ultimately swallowed up in the victory of Jesus Christ over the grave, over his resurrection, and will be proven final when he comes again. And therefore, you can be sure, follower of Jesus, that all of your lament is temporary. And every lament of Jesus' followers is tempered by the grace of Christ. David says in the last verse, I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now, I want you to realize something about the psalm. You know, the first three quarters of the psalm, David is, how long, Lord? Where are you? I'm, I'm almost at death. And then there's an abrupt switch between verses 4 and 5. Right? I will sing to the Lord. Most scholars think there's normally compression of time there, that David didn't go from praying this lament and tears and wake up two seconds later and go, I'm singing now. There's often a compression of time for the Lord to answer those 
prayers. But this is the place that David gets. So you can put it this way. Somewhere between verse 4 and 5, David forgot to remember. He forgot to remember. And therefore, the, our experience of the gospel of God's bounty, the glorious, stunning, merciful exchange of our sin to Jesus, his salvation and life and forgiveness to us, is a lament of poverty and riches. Jesus lamenting the poverty of our sins, the riches of his salvation to us. No clearer verse than this than 2 Corinthians 8, 9. It's almost a verse where all lament finds its resolution. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. I think that's the New Testament equivalent to verse 6. I will sing to the Lord. He has dealt bountifully with me. Our bounty comes to us freely by grace and mercy through the love of God in Jesus Christ secured by the finality of the sacrifice of his cross. Think of that bounty, beloved. Think of what Jesus purchased for you through his cross. He's given you a new heart. He's justified you, made you righteous in his sight adopted you into his family, poured out his spirit into your heart, given you his spirit, given you spiritual power, given you the word of God, given you others with whom you can understand and make sense of your laments, and given you access to the throne of grace where we can look upon the face of God in Jesus Christ. No wonder we sing of this like David. No wonder it humbles us. No wonder it makes us other-centered. No wonder it gives us hope. No wonder it tends to produce sacrificial other-centeredness. And no wonder, in light of such riches, we will often lament, oh, that I loved you more. Oh, that I praised you more. Oh, that I trusted you more. Oh, that I lived with greater, more vibrant hope. Oh, that I knew you more. That's an okay lament. And may it drive you to Jesus and by his Spirit be satisfied in his love. Let's pray. Man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, stricken, smitten of God, all that we would not lament forever and ever, but find our rejoicing and hope and delight in the living God, made perfect and clean for his presence through Jesus. Thank you for your precious blood. Thank you for your unfailing salvation. Thank you for drawing us to yourself. Thank you for meeting us in our lament. Thank you for caring about the things over which we sorrow. Thank you for giving us the grace to cry, to weep, to grieve, to sorrow in your presence, knowing you understand it all. And you will one day make all things right. Meet us, Lord. Help our hearts. Encourage us. Comfort us. Give us perspective. Teach us to lament well. In Jesus' name, amen. Our last hymn is 689. Let's stand and sing together.